Welcome to the Injury Investigator Podcast, where we investigate the body and how it creates patterns around your injury. I'm your host, Kim Fisher-Keys, sport massage and injury therapist and bike fitter in the Washington, D.C. area. After working with elite and weekend warrior athletes for 15 years, I'm bringing my well-traveled mosaic background to the world of podcasts. If you want to find out more about my journey from Northern California and neuromuscular re-education to osteopathy in Paris, France, to Florida and NFL players, you can find me at functionalfitbody.com or on Instagram at Kim F. Key. This podcast does not give medical advice. It is intended for listening purposes only. It is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hi, this is Kim Fisher-Key. I am a sport performance therapist, and you are listening to the Injury Investigator Podcast. And for my first podcast guest in 2022, I am interviewing Regina Pesci. She is a licensed professional counselor with a private practice in Washington, D.C. She started her postgraduate training at the Bowen Center for the Study of the Family in 1996 and has been coaching individuals, couples, small healthcare practices, and family businesses ever since. She attempts to understand physical, emotional, and relationship dilemmas through a systems lens and how our functioning in one area affects our functioning in others. Regina assists people to get and keep their thinking going under pressure. I'm so excited we finally made this happen. (laughs) So that was the... That was because we're busy, active people helping others. And 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 that was my professional voice, and now we're we're going to switch to the the regular Kim voice, um, <laughs> so we can move into the really good stuff. So I have been super looking forward to this. I have told lots of clients that I'm interviewing the nervous system biofeedback guru. Because that's what I call you when I talk about you, um, and so they all couldn't wait for this uh, podcast to actually to actually air. They've been they've been hounding me to get back get you back on my schedule for like a year, um, and so I think I'm going to back up a little bit and just you know tell the audience that I have known you for pretty much all of my professional career, which is fifteen or no, 16 years this year, which sounds strange to say. And you have been a guidepost for me professionally and personally, because I really do often think to myself in times of stressful situations, what would Regina do? (laughs) It's like, Uh it's like a mental, it's like a mental meme in my head in order to take a step back and reorganize what I'm feeling so I can act and react more factually. And I hear your voice in my head sometimes saying, what are the facts? What are the facts? (laughs) So I think, um, I guess I'll use that as a, as an example in terms of moving into the bigger conversation and then we can pull threads from there. Could you expand on the way we as people generally react to emotional situations? Well, is that a fair place think, to start the dialogue or do you, sure. okay. Sure. We can, we can jump in. You know, when you talk about emotion, I think it's important to kind of define terms. And I have always tried to be really careful about 
language and about how I define what we're talking about when we talk about emotion or feeling and in particular anxiety. So I think probably a helpful rudder in the conversation is to have this common definition of anxiety, right? Mm. And anxiety to me is the real or imagined perception of threat that we have. And so emotional experiences can often be perceived as a threat, Mm -hmm. even, even positive emotional experiences, because they might induce change. For example, you know, getting married or meeting someone new or having a child can be incredibly emotional experiences that include, you know, changes that create a perception of threat. And we have to negotiate all of that feeling, including what we're uh, consciously aware of and not consciously aware of. (laughs) Right. And is it fair to say that in general, folks react from an unconscious they have unconscious reactions um, that, that are their first go-to to manage this, these types of situations. Absolutely. So I, I would say that we're, our brains are organized to have very uh, automatic, programmed, if you will, responses to our perceptions of threat. And most of that feedback loop, uh, taking in what's happening in the environment and what's happening in our bodies is being processed below the level of conscious awareness. So we're always gonna have a threat response first. Mm. And then as we sort of sit with that threat response, there are signals in the body, uh, the sympathetic response, if you will, that give us clues about, oh, I'm uncomfortable. (laughs) I feel badly in some way or Mm -hmm. another. And we use those clues then to help us bring awareness into the present around what what's happening where am i being threatened and is this threat real and then we can begin to process what we're what we're experiencing but you know the true mechanisms of the fight or flight response are designed actually to function before we're consciously aware so that you know to get out of the way before you even realize you're in danger they're very fast they're (laughs) automatic and they're supposed to be that way (laughs) that's how we were designed yes We've evolved that way. That's why we're a dominant species. And so I'm, I'm paralleling this a little bit to the bodywork uh, feel that I'm trying to, I'm trying to make a little bit of, um, I, I guess parallel is the best word I can think of right now. In terms of when clients come in, sometimes, although more often since COVID, I almost do it all the time now. I have a nervous system check that I do in order to find out how the client is processing um, information. Because what I often see in a body that's either that's in that's re- rehabbing from an injury, or even if someone comes into me without a major injury, but are but is trying to prehab and maintain or get better in a certain area for a race or, or just general daily life, the body oftentimes doesn't in, integrate the work we do well or hold it well. So in terms of I, I simple, I release a quad, for example, because it's tight or a tight IT band. 
Um, the, the fascia is restricted. And then the next time it happens again, and barring a, what are you doing daily? If a bike fit isn't good or something like that, what I'm sometimes, what I'm often finding is the person's nervous system is extremely heightened, but they're functioning really well in that state. So that seems like an adaptive response. Is that fair to to say? Yeah. Um, gosh, several things ping in my brain at the same time. You know, the, the living, living with a certain degree of, of vigilance or particularly if you're, um, trying to achieve some high functioning state, whether it's in your job or, or as an athlete or, uh, in any arena, right. We're kind of leveraging some of that sympathetic response, right. It, kind of staying in a chronically anxious place, if you will, Mm. because it can be really productive fuel Mm. for maintaining focus and for being successful, right? If if you feel that you're constantly in competition or that you're refining how you function all the time, you know, you're leveraging some of that. I think the problem is that it can tip very quickly into... um, I guess what you would observe in the body, right? Like patterns of over response. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's difficult for people to kind of regulate what is, what is kind of the sweet spot state, uh, the right amount of adrenaline to be successful, but not too much to be impaired. <laughs> if you will. Mm. Interesting. Okay. Or to, or not be able to recover from injury. Oh, there's a tipping point. That might be a whole nother podcast. <laughs> we may have to dig, dig super deep into that for another podcast. Um, so in your uh, professional practice, are there common themes or common things that you see that seem in simple is kind of not the right, it's not a very base level word, but I guess more easily introduced to clients who want to start to make a change or to become more aware or conscious of where they are in the cycle? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the pivots that I've made over the years in terms of like the initial greeting when someone walks into the room, I've long since moved away from the phrase, how are you? <laughs> because it just opens Pandora's box. And what I ask instead is, what are you noticing today? Mm. I might ask, what are you thinking about today? And my goal is to bring people's thoughtful attention to what's happening in the moment, in their body, in their relationship dilemma, in their feeling state. And the goal is to kind of turn on thinking. Uh, yeah, like yeah. frontal brain, higher level executive type thinking. Well, you can't live in your threat response and be an observer of it at the same time. And so once we move to a state of observation, then we've begun to downregulate the stress response. And in my work, there's language. People are putting their feeling state into words, which is an integrative experience. 
And that also contributes to a sense that I'm calmer and I can start to get a handle on what I'm experiencing. So having an individual verbalize feelings or emotions helps to shift them out of, I guess, animal brain. Yeah, out of fight or flight. Out of fight or flight. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you're taking action, right? The fight or flight cues are saying, I'm not safe, (laughs) you know? I'm not safe, I'm not safe, I'm not safe. And then I say, well, what are you noticing? And then the person shifts, oh, I'm noticing pain or I'm noticing anxiety. I'm asking them to describe their experience. It's, it sounds overly simplistic in a way, maybe it is, but I call it like, and this isn't just my phrasing, but the idea would be that you become a participant observer. You're, you're experiencing distress, but I'm now asking you to be an observer of it and to be more of a student of what you're experiencing. And the emotions settle often, not always. They might kick back up. <laughs> <laughs> it might. Like you said, you know, we can have a conversation. Someone can leave the office with a new thought or a bit of a plan. And, you know, then life happens. <laughs> yes. Which I think is the other big process point, right? Like stuff comes at us all the time and our capacity to manage it varies. Yes, I, I liken that to uh, clients who leave the office with a set of thoughtful exercises I have put together for them. (laughs) (laughs) A plan. A plan to reinforce the fabulous work that was uh, done in session um, and what their bodies uh, integrated or, or we neuromuscular work, neuromuscularly worked on. And then, you know, life happens. And so maybe that only got done once. (laughs) during the during the week span so yes learning to integrate with life happening in the way I am interested by the by your description of putting things into words and uh I'm I'm curious about is that oh the way people process information well and I'm the reason I'm stuck on this a little bit is because I was starting to write down my thoughts around the word pain. I have a lot of conversations with pain, with, with clients about pain because in my work, I, it's important for me to know the degree. So I like to hone down on the vocabulary and descriptiveness. So when someone says, I have pain in my back, okay, is it sore? Is it tight feeling? Is it uh, nervy and nerve by nervy, I, you know, I give them some, some adjectives. Is it pinging? Is it buzzing? Is it so to really hone down on the description because that signifies to me, uh, musculoskeletally what may be happening and what kind of treatment I'm looking to do. But what I found fascinating in my, it kind of started to become a little editorial paper was the words for pain in the English language are f- not as many as the words for pain in the French language. Oh, interesting. (laughs) And I, so I started to write down, as I was writing down words for pain in English, I started to think of all the words I know for pain in French. And and I realized that the words I know for pain in French also have a different nuanced meaning. And in 
French, the words have almost a more psychological meaning. There's a really fabulous word. It's called douleur. And it's, it's, it's unease. It's feeling um, not correct in your body. It doesn't have a direct translation into English. And so I became a little bit stuck on this whole concept of how we use vocabulary to describe pain, maybe even in different cultures. And so for you to make that very pointed observation of having someone shift and discuss how they're feeling or what they're noticing, it sounds like it actually shifts the way their brain is operating in the process. Is that a, a, a good jump? Is that a good yeah. description? Um, I, absolutely. I think that's exactly what's happening. I think that the beginning of integration of experience mm, mm. between the threat response mechanisms in one part of the brain and the sort of cognitive framing, if you will, that occurs with language. Um, one vehicle with language, there's many, um, I think, again, creates the sensation that people can get up their arms around their, 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 their problem. You know, like, oh, okay, I can, I can manage this. And I think that contributes to a sense of agency. I also think that it leads to, once you're in that place, a more creative brain so that you can begin to see options for how you might handle your dilemma. But I don't think you can get there. You know, I can't tell people what to do. <laughs> people want me oh, to Oh, darn. Tell them what to it's do. true. People Go do want. This. Yes. They really <laughs> do. Know? But I, I can't tell people what to do because there's this, you know, as we're describing it, internal uh, work or process that a person has to travel in themselves, really, to get to a place where they're going to do the thing <laughs> that they come up with themselves or that I might tell them to do. <laughs> I might suggest. Right. I make suggestions. That's what I say. Right? I'm making it suggestions. It's so gentle, you know, when you say it like that, right? It has to be, you know, like, so there's this sort of, there are all of these, I think, when we break it down, kind of complicated or not complicated, but, you know, multi dimensional steps that people take on their own behalf to arrive at a place where they can then implement the things that they need to do. Like you have to be out of threat and you have to be a good student of your threat response system. And, you know, the moment, as you point out, the moment you leave the, your office or, or maybe even my office, which is this, you know, unique set of time to be in the present, you're back in, you know, all of the worries about the future or all of your upsets about the past. <laughs> and the quad gets tight again and you forget to do your program. <laughs> The suggestions. You forget you forget to look at the suggestions. Right. What did she say? What were the what, suggestions? What, what happened in there? <laughs> I feel really good right now and then I'm back in the car and I'm, you know, picking my kid up from daycare or I'm going on to another competition or I'm you know. It's it yeah. So I think without really appreciating what's happening in the context mm. of someone's regular life, right? I don't this is yeah. So, you know, and that's where, that's probably where the, 
the family systems piece is essential to the work I do with people. So that was where I wanted to pivot towards that. I was going to say, yes, that's where I wanted to kind of move in towards next. I was just looking at my little, my little sheet. Um, (laughs) If we could talk a little bit about the relevant, the relevant relevance, relevance um, of the emotional relationship system, um, either on, on with your work and I can, I, I can tie it into my work. One of the things I was thinking about was, and correct me if I'm totally going down the wrong rabbit hole here, but uh, I have a lot of clients who, especially since the pandemic, are um, training for triathlons. They're the first time people, either they were runners, but now they're going to do bike swim too, or swimmers, but now they're going to bike run. And they're doing it with friends or they found a group to train with so there's a there's a broader uh context of support system around that and that might be kind of a shoestring tie-in to the base where you want to start in terms of the emotional relationship system yeah well and and also the helper relationship you know so the other piece of what you do and what i do right is that you're in relationship to people. And, you know, the essence of of a good, like, helping interaction, whatever it is, physician or or therapist or, you know, sports medicine, whatever it is, is is the relationship. And so it's it's being able to put things into language, it's being able to describe in a trusting relationship in a safe place with another person. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we are a social species. We were not evolved to be isolated. People don't do well when they're isolated. And so the, the, the sort of whole being greater than the sum of the parts process that happens Mm -hmm. in the example you just provided where people are benefiting in a feedback loop from one another's efforts to be successful, you know, in in a triathlon, for example, Right, that that's that that creates motivation, accountability. It creates a shared experience. All of these beautiful neurochemicals that occur when all of those things are happening. <laughs> I like <laughs> that. Moving. I'm writing that down. Beautiful neurochemicals. I'm using that for sure. Sure. You know, there's a reduction of cortisol. There's an increase in oxytocin, depending on male, female. You know, I'm not going to get all into that, and I'm not an expert on that per se but I'm a student of it and I try to understand things through the lens of what's happening in the brain. And, you know, there's a lot of reward mechanisms that occur when we're in successful relationship and or goal-driven, shared goal-driven relationship. Mm. Of course, there's a lot of written about that topic. So the, the, maybe the pivot to family in terms of how I work with people is that I am always thinking about the individual in front of me as a product of this incredibly potent context, which is the family they come from. And families are where we learn what to be afraid of. Hmm. They're where we learn how to cope with difficulty. Good adaptations, not so good adaptations. One or the other or all of of the above. All of the above, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. so when someone might be coming in with what appears to be an individual dilemma, like 
chronic pain or anxiety, I am always looking at what is the broader context that informs the intensity, severity, the thinking around the pain uh, or the problem and how to help that person understand that, you know, this context is playing a part in maybe staying stuck or, um, yeah, staying stuck. I'll leave it with that. Staying stuck. That's that, that seems like a good base level for someone to start to think about needing to find help in order to move forward. (laughs) (laughs) And I do, I do feel like the people who come, definitely the people who come to see me, but very probably very similar to you. If a person is emailing me or calling me to make an appointment in my opinion, they've taken the first step because they've recognized that they need something extra, right? (laughs) They're they're like, so what what I've been doing hasn't 100% been working out long-term. So I need a different set of eyes or, or bring power information. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I guess from that perspective, uh, it's nice to know that the people who are showing up and then showing up into for their appointments are there because they actually do want to start to make a change. And so the, the actions taken are usually positive. The, the ideals of going out and doing the suggestions are, are high motivated, highly motivated. Um, even if life doesn't end up getting in the way. Um, yeah. So no, I, very, very much, you know, it, it starts with the awareness. Yes. I've got an issue and I can't handle my issue in a vacuum by myself. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. and for some people, that's a hurdle, right? It's, you know, it's some people who are raised in families where you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and asking for help is a sign of weakness. Just as an example of an impediment, right? To being, to improving one's functioning. And so there are hurdles that people have to navigate emotionally based on where they've come from, the messages that they might've gotten when they were younger about help. About even maybe taking that first step. Even taking mm. the first step. Yeah. But uh, yeah, presumably you have someone who's, you know, desperately uncomfortable enough. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> to be willing to learn just just something. Yes. Oh, get, absolutely. To, to help them get out of um, the degree of discomfort they're in. So that's that's a good sign. <laughs> that That is a good sign. And... I guess if I take it even a step further, which is a good reminder for me too, the usually the 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 folks who find me um, have gone through a lot already, trying to improve their health or get better from an injury. So by the time I have conversations with them, and this goes back, I guess, to the first thing, their central nervous system has been overloaded. <laughs> their their system has been. Um, their body has been, lots of things have already been done to their body to try to make it better. And one more modality imposing itself on the integration is not necessarily where I can start. I have to bring them back down to a more neutral playing field because the poor, the poor body is like, yeah, I'm, I'm done. I, I'm totally finished. (laughs) I can't add in another strengthening exercise. Thanks. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, more more is not better at that point. Yes. And I think that characterizes a sort of category of client, which I think of as kind of like the anxious seeker fix-it client. And And to be fair to people, you know, there's reasons why people end up in that position, you know, um, family and also maybe other experiences with other kinds of help. Mm. But unless you address the anxiety that's driving that, and here's our paradox, right? You're not going to get very far, right? So you have to back it up, like you said, to calm interaction, respectful inquiry, the basics Mm -hmm. of, of the relationship, in my opinion. And then you might get someone who's um, calmed down enough to, to be able to integrate your, your treatment or your, your intervention. Yes. And that even takes the more, even the one step back into um, beginning the relationship, which is, I think you said, very, very, that's a very important piece of, the, of our work. So at the end, at the end, <laughs> at the end of all of this, um, what is the help that helps? What can a, what can an individual do to be better students of and in charge of their own, uh, nervous system response, their own, yeah, their own nervous system response. Are there, are there like one, two, three kind of basic things you say, well, this is the 90% of the time this I've seen this work or this is kind of a basic, um, sometimes I tell people to, we talk about the diaphragm, what the diaphragm does. And I just want them to start mm-hmm. breathing because mm-hmm. yeah. that, that is really backing it up a handful of steps enough where they can even recognize that they're doing it. I have some clients who don't even recognize their, they stop breathing. <laughs> they're just right. holding their breath. They're holding, right, that they're, <laughs> that they're holding, you know, which is a signal of a sympathetic state, a, a mm. state of more fight-or-flight-driven physiology. Um, so I think that there are the key elements of being in awareness and being in awareness when you're not when, when you noticing when you're not in awareness, like, mm. oh, I'm worried about the future. <laughs> I'm worried about the next thing that's coming or I'm dealing with a challenge in the past. And then there's being in the present. And so I think being able to be in the moment is a piece. Um, there are a lot of, you know, traditions and mechanisms for people to practice to be in the moment. Um, but I think it's in that place that you start to get your thinking going. And I think that in the helping relationship, um, helping people to be present and in the moment by being observers of the moment is a, is a piece of mm-hmm. what I think creates, let's say, improvement or change or confidence in one's ability to cope. It would be like capacity building. Mm-hmm. I think that this is capacity building. You know, there's, there's, we always live in this tension between our relative capacity to cope with the problem and what's coming at us. And we're all vulnerable to the right amount of stuff coming at us and our capacity has been exceeded. Mm. So I think the help that help helps improves capacity. And the elements are, you know, being aware and being aware of breath is fantastic. What, 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 I don't think there's any automatic function of the body that one can actually influence in the, in the way that you can influence breath. And when mm. breathing is 
altered, it signals to the brain, I'm safe. Mm. And then you can start thinking or implementing change. I'm so, making a little I'm note. Sure that quite answers your question. Oh, it totally answers my question. <laughs> and when I do my trailer for this podcast, I'm going to throw out all these words so people wonder, oh, that sounds really interesting. I want to listen to that. <laughs> so I have, to, I have to get my buzzwords down, Regina. <laughs> so, I, you know, I think there's a, there's a lot. I think some of the other things I was thinking about, you know, being able to focus on what is working is an important piece of healing. Um, I think about the clients who have, you know, chronic pain or whether it's, um, you know, dilemmas in the family that they're presenting or working on or in in their own relationships or even, you know, just anxiety or depression. And I think shifting state to here's what's working well. And sometimes you have to focus. And I don't know if you do the same thing, you know, like, well, your eyebrows are working well, your eyes are working well, your pancreas is working well. There's, let's bring our attention and our awareness right, to the things that are going well, because when we have a problem, we tend to, you know, all or nothing, we're focused all on that problem. And that can undermine the ability to think. That is a really big piece that I'm going to have to start because one of the things I find myself doing with clients and even with myself and my personal body and life is a client comes to me with a certain a certain issue, an ankle problem or uh, tight hips, and we work through it, and then it's something else. And so sometimes I remind them, you remember when you first came to me, you couldn't run two miles? Mm-hmm. Or remember when you first came to me, you had so much inflammation in your system, you felt it all the time, and now... You only have sinus. We only are, you know, we're left with the upper body right. only. So, and they're like, oh, yeah, you're right. I forgot right. about that. Forget. As they get better, <laughs> they forget. <laughs> oh, right? yeah. Their attention is elsewhere. Yes. So be... It's hard to hold the whole picture. Focus on what is working, I think, is a great reminder to allow us to recognize the progress that we've made and the progress we've made, I guess is so easily forgotten in so many aspects of our life. That's, I guess that's the way the brain was designed though, to to look for the next threat and not think about all the, all the good things. (laughs) So we have to force ourselves. We don't need to know whether the sky is, you know, blue and beautiful. We need to know where the next threat is. Our brains are organized to be, you know, anticipation machines. Hmm. You know, we're, we're, we're constantly assessing the environment for threat. And most of that is taking place below consciousness. I mean, that's, that's the chronic, that is the human condition. Um, and then there's being more factual about what we're perceiving and the work involved in doing that. So even when there is injury and illness, disease, chronic or otherwise, there's always this capacity to try to gain perspective around what is working well, where are the resiliencies, you know, as much as I, when I do a multi-generational family diagram, I'm looking for what are the sort of adaptive patterns that have allowed this family to be successful. And I'm trying to leverage that in the conversation and say, Mm -hmm. Hey, this is, is this family, it has these issues. Yes. 
And you might be going through a terrible situation in your family, but in the bigger picture, there are these resiliencies that also inform like who you are. Hmm. Yeah, that is big picture. You just took this big picture, Regina. <laughs> I had I had drilled us down to a nice conclusion, and you just opened the next balloon and put some air in it. So we have a few things we can. <laughs> we have a few podcasts well, in the next that couple helps. years. That's, your, that's what you're thinking about. <laughs> yes, the help that helps, and recognizing that one of the biggest things fo- focuses is to remind remind ourselves maybe what is working and that will ha- that will also help remind us where we were and where we've come to um and then breath breath is another key thing like you were saying it's the really the only thing we can control from the automatic nervous system that we can try to use to slow ourselves down and to to be more present and then be more factual yeah. in our thinking signal safety which signals safety, which is why uh, maybe I just institute the nervous system check every single client because that will allow us to get to a safety place quicker so we can integrate the work on a more functional scale. Wow, so many things. So many things I'm going to have to use now. Um, so... Thank you so much for You're for welcome. being on the podcast. And um, is there? I was usually when I have guests in the podcast, I ask them where my clients can find you. But I I don't think you are taking new clients at this time. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it doesn't matter if my clients find you or not. <laughs> right. Right. It is. It's been a dense time, and my practice is. Um, full. Um, I am very fortunate, um, but it also, you know, it's hard not to be able to expand at the moment. But um, is there a website that people can I was at least say, find? The Learning Space website. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a little bit dated, but it's it's got information about uh, bone theory and the neurofeedback, which we didn't get into too much, but we could talk about that another time, I guess. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. Okay. I think that's a, that's a helpful starting point. So it's www.learningspace.com. Okay. So www.thelearningspacedc.com. Yeah. Okay. All right. So at least yeah. that's a nice nice place for a little bit more information. All right. Thank you so much. Take care. You're welcome. Thank you. Good to talk. Bye-bye. Bye.